This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis and can be found on page 8 in your bulletin. First, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. And Noah with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that was with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. The word of the Lord.
I was thinking about what a familiar story that is uh, that we just heard and how often we uh, read it only in uh, children's Bible stories or uh, perhaps hear it read that way. And I was reminded of a quote uh, from the author Annie Dillard uh, who said about the way in which we can often approach uh, worship in general. Why do we people in churches seem like cheerful tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently aware of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. And I think this is definitely true as we come to the story of, of Noah and the flood. If we really get what this story is about, we would all be putting on our helmets right now. We're in our series uh, this fall in the book of Genesis, and, and we've come to this story that we often tame and, and domesticate. Uh, but let's try and see it uh, differently today. Uh, This is what I want to try and invite us to do. And to help us, I have three questions. What is at the heart of the story of Noah and the flood? How might we live inside this story? And why should we live inside this story? First, what, what is at the heart of Noah and the flood? There, there are three intertwined themes here. Uh, a theme of creation and new creation, chaos and order, judgment and salvation. And let me say something briefly about each one of these. First, this is a story of creation and, and new creation. The author assumes, as you come to chapter 6 of Genesis, that you have not forgotten about chapter 1 in God's creation of the world. Throughout uh, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, there are these allusions back to the original creation. So just as in Genesis 1, God saw that his creation was good, seven times uh, he sees the goodness of creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 6 tells us that again God saw, but this time he saw the wickedness and he saw the corruption of humankind in, in verses 5 and 11. Just as in Genesis 1, We hear about the creation of the animals, the birds, and the creeping things. So we're told about the animals and the birds and the creeping things entering the ark. And on the other side of the flood, we see a new creation emerging as those same animals go forth with Noah. And God gives them the same command that he gave his creatures in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So that's the first theme, creation and new creation. But in between those is a struggle between chaos and order. The best place uh, to see this is in in Genesis uh, chapter 7, verse 11, where we're told that on the day of the flood, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. This is another reference to Genesis 1, where you may remember uh, God, in one of, his, one of his first acts of creation, he separated the waters above and the waters below to create the sky and the seas. 
in, in the flood, the separating work that God had accomplished begins to collapse. This is not a story of an especially big rainstorm or, or even a giant hurricane. This is a story of decreation, of the undoing of the order that God established in the world. It is a story of the chaos unleashed by evil. God made a good world and he's grieved by the corruption brought by human beings. He swears that he will blot them out and start from scratch. And he would have if it were not for Noah. This brings us to our last point. This story of creation and and new creation, chaos and order. But most of all, it's a story of the God who both judges evil for what it is and he saves. This makes it very different from other flood stories of the ancient world. Many of the cultures that surrounded ancient Israel told stories of a devastating flood that threatened to wipe out humanity. Uh, But the difference between those stories, like uh, the one we find in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Bible's account is is very striking. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the gods do not grieve. The gods send a flood to kill off human beings because they've become too numerous and they're making too much noise and they're disturbing the gods' sleep. Uh, In Gilgamesh, the gods are actually so frightened by what they unleash uh, that the text says that they were cowering like dogs. And then one of the gods uh, then plots the escape of one man who survives but he's able to get away with it only because the gods are not all-knowing or all-powerful. They're unable to stop him. The Bible reveals a very different God. Now, he's in total control, omniscient, omnipotent, and, and he's moved to do something about evil in his world. In other ancient Near Eastern uh, flood stories, you have some gods, most of them, who want to judge humanity, And you have one God who wants to save humanity. But in the Bible, there is one God who both judges and saves. This is challenging because some of us are attracted to a belief in a God who's who's full of compassion and and never judges anyone. We we like God to be nice, like a, a doting grandparent who's always ready to embrace us and never has to do the hard work of discipline. If this is you, you're probably uncomfortable with the the premise of the flood story that God has the authority uh, to wipe out human beings. But it also challenges those of us who only see God as, as a holy judge. If this is you here today, you're probably uncomfortable with the idea that God would be moved to grief and, and compassion. But what the Bible actually does is it holds both together. The one Lord is both Savior and Judge. He is holy and will hold the world accountable for sin. But he also longs for the world to be renewed and and made whole. If this is what God is like, how do we live inside this story? How does it change how Christians see the world? 
Two things. First, because of stories like this in the scriptures, Christians accept the reality of evil in the world in in all its dimensions. Chapter 6, verse 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The Bible is deeply realistic about human brokenness and sin. It encourages us to to recognize the reality of evil when we are tempted to overlook it or to to deny it in, in ourselves or others. The theologian Miroslav Volf uh, makes the point that because we live in a moral reality, there are only two ways that we might try and neutralize evil and deal with the problem. First, if we could somehow undo what has been done, but we can't. When someone says something unkind to us, we will sometimes say, you know, take that back. But that's not really possible, is it? Uh, Even if we say, okay, I I didn't mean it, our words still remain spoken. Or Wolf uses the example of a driver who, in a moment of inattention, uh, hits a cyclist with uh, the car, and, and the cyclist dies. And Wolf says this, at night or in a quiet moment of the day, we play the scene over and over again wishing desperately to undo the tragedy and to somehow make it not have happened. But our deed remains forever done. Our life isn't a motion picture in which we can, like a discerning editor, run a bad scene backward, cut it out, and keep replacing it with better ones until we are pleased with the result and are ready to show it to a critical audience. Our lives don't have a reverse button. Time runs only forward. We can do new deeds, but we can't undo old ones. So we can't uh, neutralize evil that way. But the second way that we might neutralize wrongdoing is, is if what we did wrong didn't stick to us as our fault or, or as our guilt. And Wolf uses the example of a shark. A shark sees a surfer on a surfboard and mistakes him for a seal and bites off his leg. The surfer loses his, his leg. Very tragic. But should he forgive the shark? No, because the shark was just doing what sharks do. You can't really blame it for seeing a, a tasty piece of meat in the water. It would be different if a friend had brought the surfer to a shark-infested beach and didn't warn him of the danger, though he knew that the surf was full of sharks. Then the surfer would have been wronged by his friend, and he could choose to to forgive him. The, The point is this, that we live in a moral universe, and we are moral creatures, And because this is the way the world is, this is reality itself. When we do wrong, we bring chaos and and corruption 
to God's world. So, because this is true, Christians should be the least surprised by human evil and failure when they encounter it. They should be the most realistic people in the world. But if you view humanity through this story, Christians should also be the most hopeful people in the world. Because God remembered Noah. This is the key verse in, in the entire story. 8.1 Yes, God hates evil and what it does to his creation. But he is also committed to something new on the other side of judgment. Noah goes through the flood and, and out the other side to bring a new start for human beings in the whole world. When you believe that God is like this, you can have hope in even the most difficult circumstances, whether those circumstances are personal or social or political or environmental. Whatever they are, you can affirm when things are wrong. You can name evil for what it is. But you also have hope because God is gracious and he acts on our behalf when we have nothing else to hold on to. Biblical hope is more than optimism. Let me offer an illustration of, of what I mean from a movie. In 2013, uh, Robert Redford made a movie with one actor, himself, and almost no dialogue called All is Lost. It's about a man on a solo sailing exhibition in the middle of the Indian Ocean whose boat becomes badly damaged and flooded his navigation and communication equipment is destroyed by the salt water. And then uh, a tropical storm hits and the boat cap capsizes and he finally ends up uh, in a life raft at the, at the mercy of the waves in the middle of the ocean. His ability to survive on this raft for quite a while is, is amazing. But his lowest point comes as he drifts into a shipping lane and is passed by a, a massive container ship that's just too big to even notice uh, this single man on a life raft in the middle of the ocean. And he watches as the ship goes by. Days later, as he becomes more and more desperate, uh, he sees another boat at night in the distance. And using the only things he has left, he starts a signal fire on his raft which grows out of control and forces him into the water where he begins to drown. But there in the water, as he sinks down into the depths, the, the movie ends. Uh, the final scene is of Redford sinking down into the depths of the water when he sees a light shining on the surface and an outstretched hand reaching in towards him. Friends, that, that's biblical hope. When all is lost, when everything is falling apart, when the problems are too big for us, when, when we ourselves are part of the problem, there is one who reaches down into the water to save. Here, in, in these first few chapters of Genesis we see, God sees, the, the full extent 
of the human dilemma, of the problem, of evil, of brokenness, and of sin. But God doesn't leave it at that. He makes clear that he will act. This brings us to our final point. You, you may find this portrayal of God attractive or, or even beautiful, but is it true? Why should you live inside this story? And the answer is that this is a story about all of us. We all do things that we should not. And we fail to do things that we should. We, we're all part of systemic systems of injustice and violence. Corruption is not just out there. It, it's inside of us. So how can we stand up against evil without being destroyed ourselves? Sometimes we resolve this dilemma by, by putting ourselves on the side of pure goodness and our enemies on the side of evil. But if we're honest, we, we know that we're all implicated in, in wrongdoing in different ways. So where can we find an ark to carry us through the flood? The New Testament declares that that ark is found in Jesus Christ. That he is a new and greater Noah who has the power to carry us through the judgment of God. In the person and work of Jesus, God destroys evil without destroying us. Just as Noah's family was carried along in the ark by his righteousness, the Apostle Paul says that those who belong to Jesus have died and risen with him. Romans 6.4 we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Jesus goes through the flood for us. He takes the judgment that we deserve so that we may receive the life that he deserves. In the flood, God destroyed the world and saved one person, and his family. On the cross, God destroyed one person, Jesus, and saved the world. When you see what it costs Jesus to save you, you'll be moved to love him and, and to love those whom he loves. Remember that the, the story of the flood begins with God's grief and it shows us that rather than just wipe out creation, God is willing to endure grief and to endure suffering in order to save the world. The path that he chooses with Noah culminates in the suffering that he endures in Christ on the cross. The philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff recognizes this in a beautiful little book he wrote after he lost his son Eric at the age of 25 in a mountain climbing accident. Uh, in this book, A Lament for a Son, he wrestles with God and with his grief until he sees in a new way that the, the God of the Bible is not distant uh, from his suffering, but has chosen to share it. Wolterstorff writes, Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness 
the God who suffers with us, did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us, through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. God so suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffering. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. Because God is suffering love. When you know that God's suffering, self-sacrificial love is for you, then you can go through the most difficult things without fear. You know that that your circumstances, whatever they are, uh, are not a sign of God's displeasure towards you. You don't have to be afraid of letting go of, of your privilege or your possessions. You can love others sacrificially. You can give generously, not because of what you get in return, but simply as an expression of gratitude and and a way of becoming more like Jesus who is willing to give up everything, even his life, for you. You have a hope that transcends anything that this world can offer because you know that the decisive victory has been won in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me end with this. In The Lord of the Rings, some of you may remember uh, the wizard Gandalf now leads the fellowship of the ring through the deep, dark caverns of Moriah. And there they meet evil creatures, orcs and trolls. But the worst comes in the form of an ancient demon called a Balrog, a horrible flaming embodiment of evil with a whip of fire. And in the scene in the movie, Gandalf stands on a bridge and he shouts at the Balrog, You shall not pass! And he breaks the bridge beneath it and saves the company. But then as the Balrog falls into the pit, it it manages to wrap its whip around Gandalf's legs and and pull him in. And he hangs on the edge of the abyss just for a moment and then lets go. Gandalf defeats the Balrog, but it costs him his life. Surprisingly, this is not the end for Gandalf, though. Later, he returns as Gandalf the White, and he appears to the hobbit Sam, and and here's what Tolkien writes. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. This is the good news, friends. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. He is here with us today. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we look out at this world, as we consider the, uh, uh, the chaos of our own lives, it's easy to be uh, overwhelmed, 
easy uh, to fall into despair, uh, to be anxious or depressed. Uh, we thank you for uh, accounts like this that declare to us that those things are not hidden from you, that you see the world just as it is, and you have chosen not to move away from that brokenness and sin, uh, but you have moved towards it. Uh, you have come closer, and you have committed to bringing redemption and healing. Uh, we thank you that you've done that in the ultimate way uh, in your son Jesus. Uh, we thank you that he is close to us even this morning and that we can uh, come to him uh, in the sacrament and know his presence and love and remember uh, that you're with us in all things. Uh, we uh, pray that you would uh, help us to believe and to know your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.